about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Hello, my name is Rachel. I'm reading um, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through to chapter 2, verse 3. It's on the little leaflet um, or in the Pew Bibles on page 981. So from verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Hey, everyone. It's uh, really good to be here with you this evening. And um, again, just by way of reminder, if we haven't met yet, uh, my name's Jordan. And uh, well, if we have met yet, my name is still Jordan. So there's no change there. Um, But it's great to be with you. I've, I've really been looking forward to this because as I prepared this passage, there were so many things I was struck by. And uh, just to start off by giving you um, a little bit of a heads up for where we're going, Uh, this evening we're going to be thinking quite a lot about identity. Uh, And identity is something which is a pretty hot topic in the Western world at the moment. We have many questions like, who am I? What is it that defines me? Should I continually redefine myself? based on the things I stand for or against. And I think it's also fair to say that with each passing generation, uh, we seem to move further and further for looking to any kind of traditions, institutions, and even faith in God to define our identity and our behavior. Uh, Because instead, we would much rather do it ourselves. Everyone can be their own master, can determine who they are, as they please. But what I hope we are going to see this evening in our passage is that God, through the Apostle Peter, is calling out to us with a reminder about our identity as Christians, a reminder about who God has made us to be as his people and how we can live in light of this truth. And so whether or not this evening you consider yourself to be a Christian, Uh, My prayer is that you're going to encounter something worth committing to as we think about the Christian life, love, and the Word of God. So as we begin then, uh, the first thing I think Peter's saying that really defines a Christian's identity is that we have been reborn through God's Word. Verse 23 says, For you, Christian, have been born again. Uh, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. 
through the living and enduring word of God. Uh, back home in Northern Ireland, which if you can't tell, that's where I'm from, uh, it's really common in some church circles to talk about being a born-again Christian. Um, it's not quite an old-fashioned saying. I certainly haven't heard it since I've come to Sydney. But it's quite a strange phrase, isn't it? Uh, Jesus says in John's Gospel, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. But strange as it is, I think actually the rest of Peter's comment helps us understand what this born-again transformation means when you become a Christian. And in turn, this is going to help us understand the rest of his argument. So, first, Peter, I think, is saying that fully trusting in Jesus and living a life in willing obedience to him is the result of spiritual rebirth from a seed or from a source which is imperishable. That is, it cannot decay or die. Uh, and the first thing this does really is just highlight the fact that all of us will inevitably die. Uh, I'm assuming we are all familiar with that fact. Uh, as Benjamin Franklin once put it, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Uh, but we, we see that fact in scripture, don't we? Uh, God's word tells us that ever since the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, disobeyed him, and so were separated from him by sin, that they, along with all of their seed, all of their offspring, and that includes us, were doomed one day to die. And to be fair, it makes sense. If God is the giver and the source of life, well, when you separate yourself from him, it's only a matter of time before you die. But, fast forward to the good news, for those who trust in Jesus and truly believe that his sacrifice paid for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God, well, we are born again. We are transformed from the inside out so that even though we will still die one day, our bodies will still perish. Our hope is that like Jesus, we will be resurrected and our bodies will be made imperishable like his. And so that fact of death, which every one of us faces, will one day be nothing but a memory. Now in spiritual terms, that's already quite a shift in identity, isn't it? Perishing sinner separated from God, all the way to reborn child of God who will never perish. But what then about the source of this spiritual rebirth. How do you actually become a Christian and get reborn in the first place? Well, it all begins with what Peter describes as the living and enduring word of God. The living and enduring word of God. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what those words mean. Uh, again, this is one of those things which really confronted me when I read this passage, what strange things to say uh, about words, particularly the living part. Um, and it struck me because I can be so quick to forget or be distracted from the fact that God's word, this book that we open every single week we meet together, this book that we open perhaps every day, gives us everything we need to know him and to know what he wants from us. 
And that's because practically we often treat the Bible just as a book of helpful things to know about God. Uh, perhaps for some of us it's a, a source of some wise advice, maybe even a, a place to find some comfort. And all of this is true. Uh, all of those things are good. But those words that Peter chooses to use here, the living and enduring word of God, should really arrest our attention. Uh, and he's going to explain exactly what he means about the Bible by quoting from it. If you have a look at verses 24 and 25, uh, you'll see a quotation from Isaiah which puts the value and power of God's word in true perspective against anything we might be tempted to value in its place. And he says, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, as I read this last week, I couldn't help but think that first part would make for a really interesting motivational speech. Uh, could you imagine standing up at a college graduation uh, or a sports final and saying, remember everyone, if you win today, whatever glory you go on to achieve, all of it will be like dry grass in an Aussie summer. Now go get them. <laughs> now I am... Um, not necessarily suggesting that's a real application from this passage, but whenever we take a step back and look seriously at whatever glory humankind can attain in this world, whenever we look seriously at whatever kind of achievements we might want to use to carve out an identity for ourselves, well, we can see that all of it tends to fade pretty quickly. There are, for example, Countless, countless generations of people throughout history who are now totally forgotten. Celebrities tend to come and go much more quickly than that. Uh, and even we tend to get bored of our own successes and achievements. Um, there are again countless business people, sports personalities, rock stars, tons of folks who make it to the very top of their chosen field, achieve all there is to achieve, and yet it leaves them totally empty. That desire to, to reach the top, to get that glory, is what kept them going, but it seems that once they finally got it, they realized that it couldn't provide any kind of lasting fulfillment. Case in point, when was the last time you went through something, for example, a, a difficult time in your life, and you find genuine comfort and fulfillment in remembering well, at least I got that exam result that one time. You know, at least I won that sports game. At least I once received that award. Um, my guess would be probably never. <laughs> and it's because all people are like grass. And all our glory is like the flowers of the field here today and gone tomorrow. Much of what we value most in the moment does not last. But, Peter says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is that very same word that was preached to you. And what makes the word of the Lord so enduring? Well, uh, we might consider something like the promise God made to Adam and Eve uh, thousands of years ago. 
that one of their seed, one of their offspring, would crush the head of the serpent who deceived them. And we enjoy the fruits of that promise today as we remember Jesus defeating sin, death, and Satan through his resurrection. Uh, Or for something a little bit different, how about the fact that we can say, along with the writers of the Psalms, just like we said together a little bit earlier, how about the fact we can say with them that God's law provides a lamp for our path and counsels us as we navigate the challenges of this life? Or even we might recall that the good news of forgiveness in Jesus still reaches into the depths of the deepest human needs and has transcended all times and cultures in the 2,000 years since he walked this earth. And so what that means is that we can come to know him and be reborn imperishable, just as Peter was when he wrote this letter all those years ago. And now we could obviously go on and on and on with more examples. But the point is that because God's word endures and never fades away, Peter is able to remind us, just like he reminded his original readers, that those who come to trust in God's enduring word are reborn, from perishable to imperishable. But, good as that truth may be, there is one glaring question it raises, uh, and that is, what are we actually reborn for? Uh, What does it actually mean to live out these new identities in Christ? What is our purpose? And well, to that says, or sorry, Peter says, we are reborn to show love free from falsehood. Uh, We like to talk quite a lot about authenticity as a culture, don't we? Uh, We like to make a show of decrying things like hypocrisy, selfishness, exploitation, whatever it is, uh, we want to appear to be on about the right causes, at least so long as they're fashionable. Uh, But at the same time, and in a bit of a contradiction to this, I think we sometimes find positive qualities like sincerity and nobility to be a little bit trite and unrealistic. Think of how many movies, for example, how many music artists that you could now describe as wholesome compared to a couple of decades ago. Uh, I always think that something like Lord of the Rings could never be made again as it was in the early 2000s, uh, because all of that unashamed nobility, that devotion to preserving good in the face of evil, even at great personal cost, it just seems a little bit too black and white, or at best, it it seems a little bit childish. Because we want to ask, you know, where's all the gray area that we love to inhabit? Where's that dark ulterior motive that every hero is supposedly concealing? Where's the huge moral feeling that makes me feel better about compromising my own principles? And yet, despite our collective skepticism, it is this kind of untainted uh, sincerity which is exactly who we have been reborn through the word of God to be, and it's exactly what we have been called to live out. Because chapter 2 begins, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. And just read again how emphatic 
Peter really is here. He says, all malice, all deceit, every kind. Like newborn babies, crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. In short, Peter says, get rid of those things which taint and corrupt your relationships with one another. Remove those self-serving, hidden agendas behind your interactions. Because if you stop and think for a second about each one of these vices he mentions, you really start to see how ugly and destructive they truly are. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all of these things are the antithesis of that sincere love which comes from the heart. Uh, malice, for example, harbors evil intentions for other people. Deceit hides the truth from them. Uh, hypocrisy judges them while you secretly indulge in the same sins you condemn. Envy greedily wants what others have. And slander destroys their character through false or exaggerated accusations. And perhaps most insidious of all is the reality that it's so very easy to get comfortable doing these things and that starting with one of them often leads to the others. Maybe for you it's a, a little bit of gossip here and there, uh, a little bit of unnecessary criticism which we didn't need to voice but it certainly made us feel better. Perhaps it's a little bit of pious outrage that someone would dare sin against you in a certain way even though you've done the same thing plenty of times to other people. It is in contrast to this sort of behavior uh, that we are called to demonstrate sincere, godly love from the heart in our relationships. Uh, and to that end, a very simple definition of God's kind of love is this. It is to desire and pursue what is best for others and not simply to desire what you can get out of them. Because you see, these kinds of vices which Peter condemns, you will notice that all of them will, in some way, inevitably sacrifice others for the benefit of ourselves. But for those of us who are reborn with new identities in Christ, our love must be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. And I am... Um, I really do think that we need to be careful uh, when we assess our motives. Uh, and it's not just because, as we've seen, it's really easy to slip into these kinds of behaviors, but also, I think, because we're so used to hearing the word love diluted and used for just about anything. Love can, for example, now I mean unconditional affirmation of someone uh, and whatever they want, even if it were to be deeply hurtful and destructive for them. Love can mean uh, a, ref uh, a casual sexual encounter after you experience a moment of passion with a stranger. Uh, love could mean always looking out for yourself first because only then will you be in a position to love and help others. Uh, all of this is to say that in our culture, not always, but sometimes, love can be little more than a noble-sounding gloss for self-indulgence, where it costs us almost nothing and justifies almost everything. But you, Christian, 
you are called to something more. Because you are called to put away hypocrisy, to long for the purity and holiness of God's word, like a baby for its mother's milk. And my goodness, what an intense image to use, that we are to long for spiritual nourishment the way a newborn baby craves milk. And uh, given that my first child is due to arrive in September, I get the feeling I'm going to look at this verse very differently in just a matter of months. But it's no joke, is it? Because a hungry baby has a single-minded, all-encompassing need that cannot be replaced. Because without that sustenance, it won't just become unhappy or unfulfilled. It actually won't survive. And by the way, please don't think uh, that this comparison with a baby uh, has anything to do with Christian age or maturity. Uh, You know, as if this instruction only really applied to those who are new believers. Uh, Because I think in some ways, this instruction can actually be quite the opposite. Uh, I think that as you grow in your love for God, you tend to hunger for his word more. Uh, And that is that this uh, craving for spiritual sustenance is one which should deepen over time. It's something that we as Christians should increasingly grow into rather than out of. As I reflect on that, uh, it really brings new light to Jesus' words. Uh, When he stood in the wilderness before Satan, starving for 40 days without food, and faced with the temptation to create some bread and satisfy his hunger. But if you've ever read that passage, you'll know what he answers Satan when he tempts him. He says, instead of giving in like Adam and Eve once did, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can you imagine hungering for the truth of God's word more than bread after 40 days of fasting? And on that note, perhaps we should actually ask the question, is it even possible to desire spiritual food in the way that Peter here is describing? Uh, Like a newborn baby craves milk. Uh, Or are we really just to understand this as a little bit of rhetorical flourish from Peter? Just a little bit of poetic hyperbole to encourage us as we grow up in the salvation Jesus has given us? Well... I think the answer lies just in that last little phrase of verse 3. And that is we're instructed to crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word, not just because we intellectually understand it's what we're supposed to do as Christians, uh, certainly not just because it sounds pious, but because for those who know Jesus, you have already tasted that the Lord is good. The psalm which uh, Peter quotes this little phrase from is an interesting one to say the least. Uh, And here's just a couple of verses. Listen to this and just get a little bit of flavor for what this psalm is like. He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak, and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing.
Now that is wonderful. Wouldn't you agree? That is such a rising and victorious exaltation of God's goodness. But what if I told you that this psalm was written by King David who spent an awful lot of his life fearing for it? (laughs) If you've spent much time reading the psalms, especially David's ones, um, you will feel like every other minute he was surrounded and oppressed by those who wanted to take his life. Uh, And this particular psalm is no exception. Uh, On this occasion, before he was actually crowned king himself, there was another king whom he feared was going to kill him. But just in time, God stepped in and helped him escape. And so the words that I just read to you are just a little taste of his praise after he had seen, after he had tasted that the Lord is good. And the reason I bring that up, the reason I think the background of that psalm is worth mentioning as Peter quotes it here, is because God's goodness does not only appear during what we would call the good times in our lives. Those are just the times where it's often most easy to see God's goodness. But I think actually that for anyone who has truly known and walked with Jesus, even for a little while, then you've experienced that although following him often makes life much more challenging, it certainly does it more often than it makes it easier, like it did for Peter's first readers, and although you may sometimes have doubts and sometimes have many more questions than you feel will ever be answered, you have also experienced that your relationship with Jesus is not worth trading for anything. You think of the relationship you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You think of the knowledge that you are more deeply known and loved than it is even possible to know and love yourself. You can think of the comfort of casting all of your burdens on God because he cares for you. Perhaps even the trust that in the wildest moments of your life, Jesus is in control, he sees you, he knows what you're going through, and he will help you when you turn to him. There are many examples from God's enduring word, uh, which reminds us what true love from God is. But here is one of my favorites from the Apostle Paul in Romans. Have a look at these words. I really, I love this. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so herein lies the legacy and identity of the true love in which the reborn Christian walks. And that is, if Jesus died for us while we were living every moment of our lives rejecting him, how much more then can we who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good share that same love with one another, now that he has self-sacrificially shown it to us? Because friends, if we are to have any hope of obeying this call to deep, sincere love from the heart, it must be because you have been reborn from your perishing state of sin and death to imperishable life in Jesus. 
If we are to love without falsehood, it must be because we are hungering for and tasting that good love of our Lord and Savior first. We can't sincerely pour ourselves out for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our non-Christian friends and family. We can't do that just because it looks good or because we feel like it's our sworn duty to pay Jesus back through service, as if we could ever pay him back for what he's done. No, this tenacious, sincere love in which the Christian is called to walk can only come from the overflow of a heart which is captivated by Jesus. So that the joy and thankfulness we feel for what he's done for us can then turn into love for one another. It is true that we love him because he first loved us. And so because he loves his people, his people must love one another. And so what that means for us tonight then is that um, when it comes to how we respond to this incredible calling, um, I'm not simply going to tell you that you should go and read your Bible more. Uh, I'm not going to tell you to consider joining one of our many service teams so that you can love your brothers and sisters better. Um, Now those things might be relevant applications for you. Those might be a couple of things you need to seriously consider. But for now, the point is that we are to exercise sincere love that comes from the heart. And so that means this news needs to be nourishing and sustaining us inwardly before it can spill out. For some of us, that might first mean asking God to actually help us remember and taste again how good he truly is to help us long for his truth in a way that, if we're honest, we have not felt for quite some time, maybe ever. To remember that some of the things we have so desperately been chasing and giving all our energy to will fade away while his word endures forever. And most important of all, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to remember that the only way we can live out our new imperishable identities in him is by enjoying that sincere love he has shown us so that we can then look outward and sincerely love our brothers and sisters in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us and that you've preserved this good news for us through your living and enduring word. And we pray now you would help us to know and understand what it is you ask of us as we seek to love sincerely from the heart, just as we have been loved by you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.